Uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, Matthew, in the way that he's arranged his gospel, that he, he teaches, Jesus teaches about forgiveness 77 times, and then the very next topic is marriage. Uh, so keep those two related to one another as we go through this passage. But let's, sometimes the Lord calls us to hard things. So let's pray for the grace that he will enable us and empower us to follow through on the things that he calls us to. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the glorious grace that you have given us through Jesus Christ, that the Lord in the midst of it is, as my dear brother Brian has prayed earlier, you have given us the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to illuminate the word, Lord, for us to see our sin and also, Lord, the means of repentance of that sin as we turn our hearts towards you. We pray this morning, Lord, that you would be honored as we talk about these things regarding marriage, that we would truly understand the institution of marriage, of of why you initiated it, Lord, so that we might live it out in a way, Lord, that is pleasing to you. And so, Lord, open our ears, open our hearts, and grant us the grace, Lord, to be strong and courageous and to follow through with what you have commanded. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, if you will, please turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. To begin with this morning, our text takes us through a transition that I need to address here first because it's going to set the table, if you will, for what follows afterwards. The whole book of Matthew's gospel is arranged in seven sections. At the beginning of the book, we have the prologue, and the conclusion is the passion and resurrection of Jesus. And in between those two sections are five additional portions that are easily recognizable by their pattern. They begin by telling us the activities that Jesus did, such as personal encounters, his his miracles, and short lessons. And then each section ends by presenting us with one long teaching or sermon by the Lord. So, for example, our previous section began at chapter 13, verse 54, just after Jesus' teaching through the parables, which led us up to the extended sermon that we just finished last week, contained in all of Matthew chapter 18. That made up one section. And today we will begin Matthew's sixth section, the final portion before the passion of Jesus. So let me prepare you a little for what we're getting ready here to transpire. After already, we've we've seen in the previous sections a, a growing hostility towards Jesus. Jesus has slowly but assuredly been separating himself from the typical Jewish religious leaders of the first century. And they see that Jesus will not conform to their agenda. And there is mounting opposition towards him. That's going to reach its peak as we get into this section when they will deliberately put a plot in place to seek his death. And then in the final portion of this section, the extended teaching part called the Olivet Discourse in chapters 24 and 25, Jesus will reveal to his disciples truths about the end of the age, what theologians call eschatology or the the study of last things. And through it, he not only prepares his followers for his death and resurrection, but he also expounds upon what they can anticipate after those events leading up to his second coming. So within this section alone, we're going to see the divided opposition between Jesus and the religious authorities and eschatological predictions. I say all of this because they bear importance for the first two verses of the chapter. Up to this point, Jesus has primarily been conducting his ministry in the region of Galilee, the northern section of Israel. 
And now he begins to head south towards Jerusalem. Matthew writes here, verse 1, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and healed him there. First, we see that Jesus has deliberately set his course towards Jerusalem, which is located in Judea. And to avoid confusion, from here on out, sometimes our author may use the language of going up to Jerusalem. That's not because Jerusalem is north on a map, but because it sits in a mountainous area. So don't be confused by direction as he makes his way there. Already he has revealed to his disciples that upon his arrival, he expects to be arrested by the chief priest, suffer at their hands, and be killed, which will lead to his resurrection. We saw that clearly in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, chapter 17, 12, and also in 17, 22, and 23. Jerusalem is where this will occur, and our Lord has bravely set his course towards the holy city where sacrifices must be made. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to redeem his bride with his blood. But in addition to this, we also see that Jesus has attracted a large contingent of followers as he enters Judea. We see that the compassionate Lord Jesus is healing people of their infirmities, whatever they may be. And as he proceeds to his death, he still is putting the needs of others ahead of himself. Jesus is conducting his same mission in a new area, and that makes him popular despite the opposition from the religious leaders. But this will only show the contrast of people's fickle hearts once he is arrested. Now, keep this moment of popularity in mind once we get to chapter 26 and compare that to the general population's reaction to him then. But immediately, when Jesus enters Judea, he is met by a group of Pharisees who seek to test him with a question about divorce. Now, we've encountered the Pharisees before in this gospel. They were a religious party that was zealous to obey the the Tanakh meticulously. Now, the phrase Tanakh is an acronym that means the law, the prophets, and the writings. The Pharisees observed the entire corpus of the Old Testament as opposed to their rivals, the Sadducees, who just limited themselves to the first five books of the Bible, or what we call the Torah. They loved to use God's word for their own self-righteous means. They would manipulate it, not just to accommodate their own behaviors, but also wield it in order to suppress others. And sadly, we can still see this same type of self-righteousness today within our Lord's church with people who continue to place others under the law as a legalist rather than under the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus. The Pharisees portrayed a false righteousness And it's why earlier in this book, during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had to say, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. God is not interested in your outward behavior alone, but also your heart. And as we see here in verse 3, they approach Jesus to test him, to put him on trial, to see if he can measure up to their standards. Therefore, they think they have the upper hand here. Jesus either conforms to their opinions on the law, or he is an outsider and possibly a blasphemer. The last thing they expect is for Jesus to counter their test and put them in their place. Therefore, they use a highly controversial subject to test Jesus, that of divorce. So before I delve into this, let me just ask for your patience and grace as I proceed. I am aware that the subject of divorce is just as controversial today. 
I hate how it has caused so much pain to so many friends and even members of my family. And I know that as much as we try to ensure that, that anyone divorced has our sympathy and our love as any other church member, many of my divorced brothers and sisters still feel t- this burden of feeling like they failed at something in life, even though they know that the atonement of the Lord covers all sins for those who believe in him. They still feel this stigma of shame. I am incredibly sympathetic to that, and my heart breaks for those that carry such burdens. In fact, I work tirelessly to counsel and to love those who have gone through the trauma of divorce. But despite such care, I've also had families depart from us these last three times that I've preached on this subject, not necessarily because they disagreed with the truth that I presented from the scriptures, but because it brought up such painful memories. Merely to broach the topic publicly caused this inner turmoil. So to my brothers and sisters who have been damaged by divorce, either on your own or or maybe within your own family, I hope you'll remember two things here. First, already, I have called out self-righteousness. Not just this morning, but all throughout Matthew, and especially in our previous sermon in Matthew chapter 18. We are all sinners who need the grace of God, and we need one another for our sanctification. There's not one of us that is higher than the other. And second, do not allow Satan to use shame to drive you away from the truth of God's word and from the fellowship of the believers. He would love to do nothing more than to put a wedge between you and the church. The church is not only made up of little ones that have experienced divorce, but also those of us who have been abused, those who are selfish, those who are addicts of pornography, those who have been betrayed, those who have stolen, those who have gossiped and lied, those who have been lured by false idols, but we are all seeking repentance and healing. Every person who has walked through those doors is carrying some type of burden. And we want all who are seeking the solace of Jesus to be here among us. To my fellow Christians in the room, if you affirm that you want fellow sinners here who desire grace to be here, would you say amen? Amen. We want you here. And we want to love you fully in this moment. Now, one other thing I need to say before we proceed. Too often, this particular passage is preached, and it, and it seems that the preacher wants to introduce the topic and immediately proceed on to verse 9 and talk about what constitutes a righteous divorce and who may remarry. I know people want to get that in order to appease their conscience, but I think that misses the thrust of this entire passage. Jesus' point is to provide us purpose, not loopholes. So this morning, rather than focus on the periphery issues, I want to focus on the main theme, the sanctity of marriage. If we can get this focus right, then we're going to be able to put the other issues in their rightful place. It becomes a compass by which to guide our future decisions on a multitude of issues here beyond marriage and divorce and singleness. I also confess I'm not going to be able to exhaust the subject this morning, but I do believe that if we just grab hold of the Lord's truths, it will provide exactly what we need on this day. The Pharisees asked Jesus a sensitive question. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, we need to pay attention to this word any in that question. This all stems from debates concerning Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Let me read that to you. When a man takes a wife and marries her, 
If she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out on his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who has sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, it is clear from the passage that Moses admitted that there was already some system for divorce at work when he wrote Deuteronomy in the 14th century. 14th century B.C., that is. The question was on this word indecency in verse 1. What constitutes indecency on the behalf of the wife where she has found disfavor in the eyes of her husband? Was it adultery? Was it that she had a foul mouth? Was it that she had some sort of sickness? Was it that she couldn't bear children? The term is ambiguous. They wanted to know for what purposes could divorce occur and the husband initiate the divorce that could still be righteous. I'd say it's equally ambiguous in our present day. This issue was debated among the most learned rabbis in Judaism. One side interpreted the word indecency to mean only a serious sexual transgression. Others took it to mean whatever was indecent in the eyes of the husband. Therefore, if a, if a man divorced his wife, he could do so because she couldn't cook well, or perhaps misspent money, or quote-unquote let her good self go after he married her, and he could write her a certificate of divorce. There was definitely a leaning towards this more liberal uh, interpretation in the first century. In his historical research, Tyndall House scholar David Enstone Brewer has proven that these certificates of divorce were very common. So now the Pharisees approach Jesus and they ask him a hotbed issue. It would be like someone asking today, is it right to force everyone to get a vaccine? Is it right to grant citizenship to illegal aliens? Are the Atlanta Braves God's favorite baseball team? <laughs> It'd be an issue that someone would take umbrage and be angry with Jesus no matter what he chose. Now, this was a common practice among these religious leaders. They're going to do this again a little later with controversial issues like taxation in chapter 22 and the resurrection of the dead in chapter 23. Jesus is sure to anger someone. I don't doubt that some genuinely wanted to know Jesus' opinion, but the context is clear by the word test. They wanted to put Jesus in an uncomfortable position. And Jesus answers their question with another question. And by doing so, he takes them to the scriptures as the authority. That is something the reader of the Bible cannot escape. Jesus believed the Old Testament to be God's words. And for those of you taking Mark Smith's Sunday school class on the inspiration of Scripture, here's a prime example of it for me. From verse 7, we can see that Jesus believed that Moses wrote down the words of the Old Testament. But he also believed that God the Father inspired Moses as an instrument to convey his words. He does so by asking, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
Notice that it was the one who created man and woman is the one whose words Moses wrote down. Therefore, just as Jesus is the revealed word of God and the inspired words of God in the Bible are the supreme authority in matters of faith and practice for us, there is no greater authority to which can be appealed. God is at one with his word. Therefore, the Bible is to be our guide. Even the Lord Jesus draws attention to it. So keep a finger here, and let's turn back to Genesis chapter 2 to see the context in which Jesus pulls out Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And as you're turning to page 2 in your pew Bibles, let me remind you that in the previous chapter, after each day of the creation process, God pronounces what he created as good. Six days in succession, and at the end of each day, the Lord declares his creation to be good. But now we have the first place where God states that something is not good. We see this in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, I do not believe that God made a mistake here and went, oh, I forgot to create a companion for man. It's obvious by this parade of animals that passes by Adam that in what he is about to do, this is special and particular to Adam. This is meant to be a gift to him. And even how the woman is created is special compared to the animal kingdom in Adam. She isn't made from dirt, but from the man's very side. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now look what happened afterwards. <laughs> God brought the woman to the man. It was God the Father that gave away the first bride. And Adam recognizes what an incredible gift God gave to him, special and unique for him. Then he said to the man, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Can you imagine Adam in that moment, seeing this beautiful woman presented to him? I bet he said, whoa, man. It'll come, it'll come. <laughs> Verse 24, therefore, this is Moses offering his commentary on what just transpired. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, in this context, to be naked and unashamed meant that the husband and the wife could be completely innocent and vulnerable in front of each other. Note this all happens before sin enters the world. There, there was no fear of abuse or manipulation between the two. They could be themselves before the other. Also note that God didn't create marriage because of sin in our lives, as though we need each other to overcome one another's deficiencies. God did this to bless this man and this woman with a gift. 
They are to become one flesh. When it comes to marriage, we should not think of one spouse without the other. Now, they don't lose their individual identities. Rather, they bring themselves together to demonstrate an inseparable unity, a commitment of purpose. So we need to ask, why? Well, in some ways, this seems mysterious in that God tells us a marriage is to be a one-flesh relationship. A husband and a wife are to become so unified that the two are thought to be one. Why should marriage be a relationship that is unbroken? Well, the Apostle Paul reveals why in his letter to the Ephesians. If you will, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. This is found on page 978 of your pew Bible. Ephesians chapter 5. Now, I could spend a few Sundays worth of sermons in just this one passage, but Paul is speaking to gender roles within the marriage. There is a role that the bride is to assume, and there is a role that the groom is to assume. The role of the bride will be that of the trusting church, and the groom is to reflect the servant leadership of Jesus. Now, I'll have to save the details of this for another day because it's beyond the scope of today's sermon, but we just need to, to hone in here on the purpose. But Paul writes here in chapter 5, verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. So it's clear from Paul's intention that the bride here assumes the role of the church. Verse 24, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And now husbands, this is for you. And by God's grace, I hope you're living this kind of servant leadership in your homes. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, it's clear from Paul's intention that husbands are to take the initiative of spiritual leadership, always cleansing with the word, sacrificially putting their wives ahead of themselves. And here's that one flesh theme here, verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now look here, Paul's going to quote the same exact verse that Jesus does in Matthew 19, verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now I need to say here, whenever the New Testament writers speak of a, quote, mystery, they're not saying that this is a subject that's still unknown. Rather, they're saying that the full extent of the mystery has now been revealed to us. And that's what's happening here. Verse 32, this mystery, the one flesh relationship, is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. As a special relationship, marriage is holy. It is set apart by God for a specific purpose. It is to model, to reflect a one flesh relationship that is found in Christ and his bride, the church. Because of our union with Jesus, I should not think of Jesus without thinking of his bride, the church, nor should I think of the church without thinking of Jesus. We are his body eternally. We stand before the Father in the righteousness of Christ eternally. That will never cease. 
When the Father looks upon us, he does so in the same manner as he does with loving affection towards his Son because of our union in Christ. And the relationship between a husband and a wife should convey the same kind of unity. That is its intention and why it is set apart as holy. Now let's turn back to Matthew chapter 19. Now those of you who focus on time, don't worry. We're going to be moving through these next few verses quickly here. All right. Matthew 19 verse 4, Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Now look, look at how Jesus views this pronouncement. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, I tell the young couples that I counsel, it's not me that marries you. It is God that marries you. Only God can truly provide you with a type of one flesh relationship that is reflective of Christ in the church. He is the one that makes that a reality. And we hear verse 6 often pronounced at weddings, and some think this is a type of warning to others not to interfere in the marriage of the couple, as though the enemy might come from the outside. But in the context of what Jesus just said, the man who could potentially separate is specifically the groom. This is the same man who left his father and mother to become one flesh with his wife. He is responsible for hanging in there and holding the marriage together rather than looking for ways to divorce his wife. After all, only men could initiate divorce proceedings during this period. And Jesus is making it clear he intends for a husband to stay committed to his wife, being faithful in order to fulfill God's original intention for marriage. Now, the Pharisees and the disciples, they pick up on this. The religious leaders do so first. Verse 7, they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Again, Jesus appeals to Genesis chapter 2. He's saying, you Pharisees who claim to cherish God's word need to revisit the purpose for marriage from its inception. Verse 9 is a strong pronouncement, one that many would take issue with within our culture. There are many interpretations which I'm not going to hash out here, but at the very least, we can say without doubt, you do not have God's blessing to break your marriage vows in order to pursue someone other than your spouse. Jesus' words completely obliterate the liberal understanding of indecency from Deuteronomy 24. Once again, it's clear that he intends couples to strive towards unity for as long as they both live. And the disciples are a little stunned by this as well. We can tell by their reaction with their own question. We need to think in terms of, well, what if I get saddled with an unpleasant wife for all of my life? Verse 10, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. And Jesus agrees with them. If your attitude is not to remain married, then you shouldn't get married. Verse 11, but he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. Now eunuchs, which he's getting ready to mention here, refers not only to those physically incapable of sex, but those who choose to remain celibate for the rest of their lives. 
Verse 12, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now, I want to revisit this again next week and talk a little bit about the blessedness of singleness. But for now, it's safe to say that Jesus is saying, you're right. If you can't keep the marriage commitment, if you're not pursuing its original intention, then it would be better for you not to marry. After my death and resurrection, you will soon discover that marriage means something more than you are aware of. It is intended to portray my deep love for my bride, my commitment towards her despite her sinfulness. So let's just take a moment as we finish here to think upon Jesus' idea of marriage. Now, I know tomorrow is Valentine's Day, and perhaps you think this is convenient for me to do this right now, but, but we need to take our eyes off the world's perception of marriage and see it through the eyes of Jesus here. And there are three points here. First, we must recognize that marriage is holy. It is set apart by God to signify a deep commitment to one another. Even non-believers can somewhat be a reflection of this as they commit themselves to one another for life. Therefore, Christians especially should honor marriage and work to promote it and edify one another to strive for unity in their marriages. Second, one other thing that we can glean is that Jesus is acknowledging that marriage is difficult. Outside of his own love for his bride, there is no such thing as a perfect marriage. And I'd be the first to confess, marriage is hard. I truly believe, I truly believe this, that Lisa is the perfect wife for me. I believe within the sovereignty of God that he designed us and created us and, and used life experiences to shape us for one another. But despite that, maintaining our unity is hard work. We are two sinners trying to live with one another. Striving to have the same life goals, to, to raise our children together and to serve each other, even though I am the most selfish one in the relationship. And yet nothing has taught me more about grace and mercy more than my relationship with my wife. Nothing has taught me more about loving others through their faults than my marriage, particularly as Lisa loves me through mine. I don't think there is any other life experience that God has used to sanctify me more than my marriage. This is why when a spouse dies, it is so painful. You have literally lost half of yourself. And my heart goes out to my bereaved brothers and sisters. It's also why when a partner betrays the others, you've marred the reflection of Christ. But here's the thing, when we stick together throughout the hardships, when we hang in there despite the harsh words, despite the selfishness, despite the immaturity, and we continue to seek the good of our spouse, we are modeling and reflecting the steadfast covenantal love of Christ who will never leave us and never let us go. The one who loves us despite our selfishness and our imperfections. In such a pronouncement, Jesus does not take anything away from the hardship of two sinners seeking to become one. Rather, he gives us the reason to stick with it.
to keep striving even when we think we have found some indecency in our spouse. And third, to my friends who have experienced the pain of divorce, whether it was your own or your parents or a sibling's, unless it was to happen to me as well, I willingly admit I will never understand the depth of your hurt that you have faced. But Jesus has. He understands. He has been betrayed. He has had those who made promises to him fail at those commitments. And he still offers grace upon grace for the one who still struggles with being alone, the one who is still hurting from it. He will hold you. He will walk through your pain with you. He will bring you to healing and sufficiency in himself. He will never, ever, ever let you go. And if you should find yourself in in a new marriage, I would say you are to strive towards that Christ-like unity presently and with one another. Work even harder to maintain and preserve it. Warn others of the pain of divorce and share life lessons on how to avoid disunity. You can redeem the pain from your past. And friend, perhaps you're hearing of this remarkable, never-failing love of Jesus, and you're desiring that. You so much want to be loved with an affection like this. And you wonder, will he accept me? Weak, wounded, stained by sin. Friend, that is the case for all of us. (laughs) And it still is. If you're willing to place your faith in him, believe that he died on the cross for your sin and shame, then he welcomes the sinner with open arms, with a marriage-like commitment, He promises to be your husband. Never will he leave you. Never will he forsake you, no matter what you've done or what you will do. That's the kind of savior he is. You can trust in his faithfulness. Will you come to him on this day? Let's pray. Oh, Lord. Let us reflect on the love of Jesus. How Christ Jesus came into the world while we were yet sinners. How he loves us despite our faults, our impurities, our sin, our rebellion against him. And yet he still chose to love us. He still chose to die for us. He still chose to grant us his righteousness so that we might stand before you in all cleanliness and be known as his. Thank you, Lord, for such a beautiful model of love. And Lord, to our our married folks and those who are seeking marriage here this morning, I pray that you would grant them this vision of this incredible love of Christ loving his church. Lord, motivate us to love one another tenaciously, to not give up, to forgive, to show and reflect the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray specifically for my brothers and sisters in a marriage that right now they're just hanging on by a thread. Oh, Lord, point them to the gospel right now. 
Help them to see the beauty of Jesus and, and the forgiveness and the reconciliation that he offers and allow that to be a model for a fresh start for them to begin today. I pray, Lord, that the single folks that are within our congregation right now, that if they have a desire for marriage, that they would look towards this as their compass to understand the, the gravity of what you call us to in marriage and that we would sanctify it. I pray, Lord, for those who are broken and have been hurt from relationships of disunity. I pray, Lord, that you would bring healing upon them. Show them that even in the pain of that, the example of the cross, of how even through tragic circumstances you can bring about victory. And so, Lord, we pray that we recognize that that the vision of marriage of what we have is to be known as Christ in such a way that when we reach our final destination in heaven, we will see our bridegroom. And we will know the great price that was paid and that in the midst of it, Lord, we would say to him over and over again, worthy, worthy, worthy of you, of all honor, all glory, all of my love for all of eternity. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.